Film dialogue serves two main functions, to reveal character motivation and forward the plot. Beyond that, it rests on the writer's singular ability to weigh each word with extra value, so the dialogue means something more. Something more because actors need to have something to disguise what they're really saying. I'm talking about subtext. All good dialogue has it. Good dialogue tells the truth while simultaneously telling a lie, or at least concealing the truth. What is concealed is the subtext, and quite often the subtext is the real truth the character is terrified of admitting. Without that paradox, dialogue is mere exposition. But saying dialogue needs subtext is just another way of saying that language is a code. That's what dialogue really is, and no matter what is said, it needs to be decoded. For some dialogue, the code is easily understood, but great dialogue comes encrypted, and so needs decrypting. Take a look at this nonsense. Report by Soviet High Command on their recent naval exercises in the Black Sea. Just what the Admiralty has been begging us for some information on. Where did you get this? I didn't. Percy and his little cabal walked in with it. Look, control. Shut up. Style appalling. Patently a fabrication from beginning to end. Just could be the real thing. Well, if it's genuine, it's gold dust. But its topicality makes it suspect. Published in 1974, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was John le Carre's fifth novel, all of which featured, to varying degrees, his most enduring, celebrated and enigmatic character, British Secret Intelligence Officer George Smiley. Celebrated a character as Smiley is, he is just one in a library of fictional British spies whose careers have endured across several novels. In 1905, Baroness Orksey gave us Sir Percy Blakeney, better known as the Scarlet Pimpernel. Ten years later, John Buchan created Richard Hannay, whom Buchan would disguise variously as Cornelius Brand or Richard Hanno. In 1953, Ian Fleming unveiled James Bond, also known as 007. And in 1962, Len Dayton introduced us to an agent whose name ingeniously remained classified across no less than four novels. But when those novels were brought to the screen, the operative was named Harry Palmer. It isn't usual to read a B-107 to its subject, Palmer, but I'm going to put you straight. Insubordinate, insolent, a trickster, perhaps with criminal tendencies. Yes, that's a pretty fair appraisal, sir. Given that all those characters have pseudonyms, it is only fitting that John le Carre isn't John le Carre, but really David Cornwell. Born in 1931 to a conman of a father, Cornwell nonetheless secured a place for himself at Oxford. There, as an undergraduate aged 22, he was recruited to work for MI5 and later MI6. For close to 10 years, Cornwell was a valued servant conducting surveillance, running operatives, and overseeing interrogations. In 1961, however, he turned his hand to writing, but because of British intelligence rules, he could not publish under his own name. And so, John le Carre came into being. Of course, le Carre is by no means the only British author who has operated in the world of espionage. Somerset Maugham went into service straight after World War I. 
Alexander Wilson began in the 1920s, Graham Greene was recruited in the 30s, Ian Fleming signed up in the 40s, and Frederick Forsyth was an agent from the 60s. Excuse me. It's just occurred to me that we've got two days to catch the jackal. What? How do you know? It was silly of me not to have seen it before. Am I right in thinking that the president has no engagements outside the palace today, tomorrow, or Saturday? Nothing. And what is Sunday, August 25th? Of course, liberation. Lucari's 1961 debut, Call for the Dead, sold enough copies for a second novel, A Quality of Murder, to be published the next year. A year after that, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold was ecstatically reviewed and quickly became a bestseller. But it was not exactly a case of third time a charm. In 1964, Cornwall's intelligence cover was blown by senior MI6 agent Kim Philby. The reason Philby did that was because Philby was a double agent working for the KGB. Philby was but the third such MI6 agent, after Donald McLean and Guy Burgess, to betray their country and for decades pass the most sensitive secrets to the Soviet Union. As brutal a blow as that was to British intelligence, it was not the last. In the 1970s, long after McLean, Burgess and Philby had defected east, two more senior agents, Anthony Blunt and John Cairncross, were exposed as KGB operatives. Collectively, the Quintet are now referred to as the Cambridge Five. But although Blunt and Cairn Cross admitted to spying as far back as the 1950s, neither of them served time, were tried for, nor charged with treason. It was felt that such a revelation would be against the public's interest. To many people familiar with the world of espionage, such facts are not surprising. Duplicity, compromise and hypocrisy are muddy waters known to them all. Here is Lacari describing the life of secrets, lies, beliefs and betrayals and how it actually reflects the ordinary world. Well, anyway, the atmosphere is secret. You have nobody to trust but your colleagues. So you're thrown upon one another, and then you don't trust one another. So that really is a secret world within a secret world. Actually, this is not so far from corporate life. This is not so far from the ordinary world. We're talking of corporate behavior, but redefined in intelligence terms. We're talking of the individual relationship to the corporation, but reset in these criteria. It resonated with the public. People understood they wanted to have their lives translated in terms of conspiracy to quite some extent. And that is still the relationship between man and the institutions that he creates. Agents who use aliases, agents who become authors, agents who become double agents, codes that need deciphering. Whether written by Baroness Orksey, John Buchan, Graham Greene or Frederick Forsyth, everything signifies a duplicitous, if not a deeply paranoid world, where precious little is what it seems. But what separates Lacari's work from almost all those writers is his focus not on the ideological conflicts between the West and East, but the subterfuge within an intelligence division itself. He said, there's a mole right at the top of the circus that he's been there for years. It does mean you're rather well-placed to look into this matter for us now, doesn't it? Outside the family. I'm retired, Oliver. You fired me. To say that Lacari's plot is labyrinthine would be an understatement. 
It is such a maze of loyalties, suspicions, divisions, deaths, supposed deaths, disappearances, reappearances, revelations, accusations and confessions, almost all of which contradict one another. You are left with little option but to either act as a sleuth yourself or surrender to the writing and the belief that everything will be made clear by the final page. With time, Jim seemed to respond to treatment, however. His eye grew clearer and he became alert again as the shadow of his mother's death withdrew. By the night of the play, he was more light-hearted than Roach had ever known him. Hey, Jumbo, you silly toad, where's your Mac? Can't you see it's raining? He called out. As tired but triumphant, they trailed back to the main building after the performance. His real name is Bill, he heard him explain to a visiting parent. We were new boys together. The gun, Bill Roach had finally convinced himself, was, after all, a dream. In 1979, the BBC broadcast a seven-part adaptation of Le Carre's novel. Starring Alec Guinness in a towering performance as Smiley, the series was instantly revered as a landmark. The passing decades, however, have exposed its weaknesses. But what is undeniable is that it benefited greatly from the almost five and a half hours the television format afforded. By contrast, the 2011 feature-length adaptation written by Peter Strawn and Bridget O'Connor and directed by Thomas Alfredson was granted no such luxury. Sadly, O'Connor died before the film was completed. So here is Strawn in 2011 detailing to David Poland their approach in adapting the novel. I think we did about three drafts and then it was greenlit and we knew we were going into production and then we continued working on them. The biggest challenge was figuring out how to do all of that in such a tight timeline and leave lots of space in there as well, leave lots of air in there. Mm. For the, you know, cause it's got, the book's got such a sort of autumnal, melancholy tone and mm -hmm. it was trying to hold on to that so it didn't become a sort of MTV edited version of it, you know. Right. That, that was the challenge really, wasn't it, getting the balance mm. right. There. The greatest hits. Yeah, so, th so that was a challenge really, leaving, leaving the air in them. But because Thomas got such a strong visual imagination from the beginning, he was always looking mm -hmm. for those moments where, you know, it wouldn't just be people talking to each other, where you'd, you'd be able to use image to tell the story. When looking around for a suitable director, producers Tim Bevan and Eric Fellner made an inspired choice of approaching Alfredson. Alfredson was hot off Let the Right One In, a highly original take on vampire mythology. Bringing John Ida Valinquist's novel to the screen was no easy thing, and perhaps it was Alfredson's clarity of vision that brought him to the attention of the working title producers. But there was far more to it than that. Here is the director at the AFI in 2011, revealing his method. Many years ago I made a, a TV series in, in Sweden and uh, I had this enormous scene I had to do. It was 12 pages or something, and it contained a so much information that was crucial for the series. We couldn't cut it down and we couldn't divide it into several scenes. We had to do it that way. And we shot it and it was a nightmare to shoot it because it was so long. And it ended up being 14 minutes something. And then I struggled weeks in editing. And you lost it after three or four minutes, you, 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 you didn't hear what the characters were saying because th there were too much information. So after two or three weeks in editing, the answer was to actually add a couple of minutes of silence into it. And then you heard what they were saying because you need time.
So, let me amend what I said earlier about good dialogue and subtext. It's not only a case of what is said and what is not said. In this instance, the silence between the words allows the audience to interpret what is being said, to weigh up whether the disclosure is a confession or a deception. However, that does not fully reveal the obstacles Strawn and O'Connor faced. The challenge with adapting any Lacari work is how to cinematize what his prose so often internalizes. Lacari's characters don't necessarily know who they're looking for, so instead, they have to navigate their way through the mystery by way of reason until they finally deduce who their target is. They sit, they watch, they read, they listen. Which means that no matter how intriguing and intelligent Lacari's spies may be on the page, when they are on the screen, they are always at risk of appearing cumbersome, lethargic and inert. And that is what every actor fears. Being told to be so still that they have no room to suggest any thought or feeling. Which makes Gary Oldman's performance as George Smiley all the more compelling. It is all about restraint, not just verbally, but physically and emotionally. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy reunited Alfredson with cinematographer Hoyte van Hoytema. They had previously collaborated on Let the Right One In. For this film, however, they employed similar techniques, but for very different reasons and to a very different effect. Again, they used long lenses, frequently kept the camera static and well back from the events. Most of the film is set in 1970s London, when the upper echelons of British intelligence worked in offices that had yet to be broken up into smaller, more modern working spaces. To convey the scale of such arenas, Alfredson and von Hoytema opted for anamorphic lenses. Such lenses were the preferred format of many cinematographers in the 1970s, but for a variety of reasons they had fallen out of use in the 90s and early 2000s. Technological development meant that sharper lenses took their place. But in the last number of years, some cinematographers have chosen to revive their use, and the effect here is interesting. It immediately helps authenticate a sense of time and place. For anyone familiar with the early to mid part of that decade, TV commercials for the likes of Harvey's Bristol Cream, Hamlet Cigars, Old Spice Aftershave and Austin Allegro's might serve as the touchstone. But crucially, Alfred's aim is definitely not nostalgic. Those were bad days riven with fear and suspicion. And here is von Hoytema at Camera Image in 2011 explaining the intention. If you've watched too many films as inspiration for your films, you also end up copying, even though your, your head is sometimes a database of all films you have loved in your life. But, but we started looking a lot at stills, you know, a lot of documentary stills from the 70s. Uh, there's one book that we really loved. It's called London City of Any Dream by Erwin Fiegler. And it's very long lens documentary shots. They're very grainy and they're very um, voyeuristic uh, images. And they're very raw and they're very rough. I mean, if, if you ask about one of, one of the references or inspiration, that has been a, a very big one. Okay, enough code and enough subtext. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is an exemplary film, but superlative as everything about this Lacari adaptation is, it is easily one of the greatest achievements in the spy genre. For me, the standout element is the score by Alberto Iglesias. Inspired a choice as Alfredson was, securing Iglesias was as rewarding as it was unexpected. Iglesias collaborates most regularly with Pedro Almodovar and has scored 11 of his films.
Listen to the opening sequence to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and you will hear Iglesias' work taking the film's tone in a surprising direction. The score doesn't sound like something you would ordinarily open a film with, simply because it carries an air of resignation. Something has just ended. Which is appropriate. Smiley's time at the circus is all but over. Only it isn't. The spy's world of uncertainty and gloom is perfectly tempered with a glimmer of optimism that Iglesias' score delivers all the way through. <laughs> 